Amen. Wow, that was good. Good, good, good. Praise the Lord. Take your Bible, turn over the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. We've been in our series, An Unlikely Hero, and we're on part 3 of 3 today as we'll close it down, but Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 is where we'll begin, and we'll kick things off. So glad that you've chosen to join us today if you're visiting with us, and uh, if you're always here, we are so thankful and grateful for your faithfulness. The Lord's been so good to us, and uh, we appreciate all that he's done. 2023 is already passed almost. I mean, we've got one more week or a little over a week, and we'll be into 2024. Now, I don't know about you, but as I think about that, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around it. I, uh, you know, I'm not that old, obviously, but... Um, <laughs> But I, I, I'll be frank with you, I, I don't know when I was younger that I thought I'd be alive today. And uh, here I am, and the Lord has spared me these years and allowed me to live and uh, serve Him, and I appreciate that. Many of you probably feel the same way. You're thinking, boy, I don't know if I'd ever see 2024. And here we are. I guess we haven't seen it yet, right? Uh, we, <laughs> we still got a few more days, but... Uh, boy, what an amazing journey it's been, and life is a journey, is it not? A lot of ups and downs, twists and turns, and there's a lot of things that, well, you face, and some of them you like, some of them you don't, but we're certainly glad that we don't have to go through them alone. We have the Lord Jesus Christ, if indeed we've called upon him and invited him in our life. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, and she shall bring forth a son... Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Again, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Rick Rescorla, he served as the head of security of Morgan Stanley in the South Tower of the World Trade Center. Rick was always skeptical about the vulnerability of the tower basement especially after the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center, Rick implemented regular evacuation drills. He used his unmistakable megaphone to guide thousands of employees down the stairwells to safety. During the drills, Rick would sing Welsh and Cornish songs. Not corny, but Cornish. I'm sure some thought they were corny. But his message to all his colleagues was simple. In an emergency, no matter the chaos, leave your offices, descend the stairwells, and evacuate the building. That notorious day of 9-11, when the first plane struck the North Tower, the Port Authorities advised occupants of the South Tower to stay put, declaring the area secure. But Rick picked up his megaphone and he led his employees to safety. As the second plane struck the tower, Rick's Cornish songs kept their spirits up as they evacuated, as they made their way down the long stairwells. He didn't stop there, though. He ensured that the employees were making their way out safely, and he had gotten the majority of them, if not all, out. And he went back into the South Tower, and he began to search for survivors. On that day, Rick had called his wife. And there on that telephone, he talked to his wife named Susan, and he said, Stop crying, honey. I, I have to get these people out safely. If something should happen to me, I want you to know I've never been happier. You made my life. 
Unfortunately, Rick never did make it out of the South Tower alive. But thanks to his leadership, his heroism, all but six of the more than 2,700 Morgan Stanley employees under his care survived. Last week, we began our series by pointing out another unlikely hero, Jesus Christ. Just a couple of weeks ago, His birth brought no fanfare, as the song said just a moment ago. His life, outside of the last three years, was lived in obscurity. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He was despised and rejected of men. And 33 years after being born, he would hang on a cross in shame, and there he would die. Jesus seemed an unlikely hero. But as we see and have seen, the battle wasn't over. He had just begun the fight. And over these last weeks, we've considered this unlikely hero. We addressed his unusual birth. As we said, his birth was part of prophecy. It had a peculiar guest list, and it impacted the whole world. We pointed out his unusual disposition. I mean, he was described as a lamb. He was meek and lowly. Matter of fact, uh, when being prosecuted by the Uh, Sanhedrin and ultimately Pilate and the authorities, he was quiet and unwilling to defend himself amidst the false accusations, the unfair treatment. He kept quiet. What an unusual disposition. What an unlikely hero. This morning, I want to address this thought. Finally, this unlikely hero had an unprecedented outcome. Unprecedented outcome. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you. We want to thank you for this time together. And we're grateful, Father, for just men and women that you have placed in our lives that have truly stepped up and done something amazing in our lives. Lord, we think about the heroes that we read about in the newspaper, possibly online or maybe even uh, on YouTube and other uh, sources of media. We thank you, Father, for those that are willing at many times to put their very lives on the line to save the lives of others. Lord, we also are grateful today, and even more so than ever, for your son, Jesus Christ, who literally left heaven and came to earth, and although he was sinless and perfect and never deserved to hang on that cross, he willingly went to that cross and died on our behalf. He paid the penalty for our sin. He is the ultimate hero. Thank you again that we can celebrate his life, celebrate his death, And as we will see today, his resurrection. We love you. We thank you. And we ask that, Lord, you would be glorified in this service. Now fill me with your Holy Ghost and allow me to be your mouthpiece. I have nothing at all to give this thy people except you give it me. I am trusting you and leaning on you now. And I'm asking that, Lord, you would just anoint every listening ear to hear with spiritual ears. May we leave different than we came. In Christ's name, amen. In John chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. Still, in spite of all of that, He fixed His eyes on the finish line, and He continued in the direction of the cross. Despite being rejected by those who opposed His message and methods, and even those closest to Him, we think about those in His own hometown, and even one of His very disciples, Jesus would not waver in His resolve, 
but instead he drove ever more patiently and persistently toward Calvary. Despite the constant attack of the Jewish leaders who claimed to be the followers of God and students of the law, in spite of the naysayers and those who doubted his deity, discounted his miracles, and discouraged others from believing, Jesus simply reminded himself of the very purpose for his coming, and he would not allow himself to be dissuaded, nor would he be sidetracked in his destiny. Despite the doubts of his own disciples in the midst of their testings and amidst their periodic bouts of unbelief, Jesus Christ would not be moved from his purpose and plan. He was determined to pay for the sin of the world and destined to die on the cross. Now the faith of his disciples would be tested like never before. I mean, after traveling and ministering with the Lord Jesus Christ for three years, after standing toe-to-toe and side-by-side with Jesus Christ, who was Messiah, as they became more convinced than ever that the kingdom promised would soon be realized, they dreamed of Israel being elevated to its glory, the glory that it once possessed with Solomon and David himself. Now Jesus would give them a gut blow. I mean to tell you, he was going to tell it to them straight. Instead of outlining his rise to power, instead of pointing out how he would ultimately take the Romans out of power and place himself on the throne and ultimately lead and head up the nation as well as the world, as the Bible had prophesied, Instead, he would begin by pointing out the dismal reality of things. We see the dismal reality. Turn over to Matthew chapter 20. These disciples thought, okay, when is this going to happen? When and where will it take place? We are excited about what Christ is going to do. He came a king. He's going to rule and reign. But that's not the message he began to share with them as they came closer to his end. Jesus, again, begins to point out this dismal reality in Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. Toward the end of his earthly ministry, He says, and Jesus going up to Jerusalem, verse 17, took the 12 disciples apart in the way and said unto them, behold, we go up to Jerusalem and the son of man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. We know in the book of Mark, it's said again, and it's to reiterate and to reinforce again what Jesus had said, to ensure that we as uh, believers in this day and age understood that he made it perfectly clear and plain what his destiny was. He told them in Mark 10, 33, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. They shall mock him and scourge him and spit upon him and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. That's a pretty dismal reality. 
I mean, after traveling with Jesus Christ for three years, after seeing the wonderful miracles that he performed, after recognizing the great power and authority that he possessed, now he says to them, oh no, I'm not going to Jerusalem to establish myself as king on the throne. I'm going to Jerusalem to turn myself over as a lamb to the slaughter. What a dismal reality for these disciples. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that a couple of them came to him and said, Hey, Jesus, we just want to know, could we sit on your right hand and your left? What were they expecting? They were expecting him to rule and reign as the word of God has spoken and as it has said in prophecy. And certainly Jesus Christ will return to earth one day and he will assume his rightful place on the throne of David and he will rule and reign. But he was not ready to do so. There was still work to be done and he shared this dismal reality Boy, that dismal reality led to some discouraged disciples. Turn over to uh, John chapter 14, would you please? John chapter 14. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. John 14, verse 1. Jesus recognized how, uh, recognizes how depressed and discouraged the disciples were. And he makes this statement in John 14, verse 1. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Boy, Jesus would let them know that there's still hope. Although I'm headed to Jerusalem, although it appears that all hope is lost, I want you to realize that, no, it's not. Because this would seem a very conflicting message to some degree. I mean, here he is saying that he's going to go die in Jerusalem, but then he's saying, oh, by the way, I go to prepare a place for you and I'll come again. If you're dead, you're not coming again, are you? Well, he had told them he'd rise again, but for some reason, we're going to find out a little bit later, that seemed to escape them. He would also go on to inform them of the Spirit of God that would would be sent on his behalf, that would come and indwell them and ultimately be with them. And he himself would be with them in the person of the Holy Ghost. In John 14, 16, the Bible says, Jesus speaking to them, I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter. Oh, I know I've traveled with you for these years and I know you've been with me and I've been there to bring comfort and strength and hope to you, but I am going to be leaving, but I will Pray that the fathers give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you, and I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Boy, those discouraged disciples are so down and so low that Jesus Christ took it upon himself to try to lift them up. And boy, he certainly did in one sense. I mean, he let them know that there's hope for the future. That although it may seem dismal and although it may seem discouraging now, there's hope for tomorrow. And may I say that as a believer today, it doesn't matter how dark and dismal your day may seem. It doesn't matter what circumstances you face. There is still a God in heaven that rules and reigns and sits on the throne. 
And He is able to deliver you and to give you hope and help if you'll turn to Him. But it won't do us any good if we fail to turn. Then he goes on to say, by the way, I'll be with you, but just in a little different form, I'll be living in you. That temple that stands there and now sacrifices are made on behalf of the people and Israel and the nation, that'll no longer be needed because the sacrifice will be made and I will come and literally live inside you. You become the temple. So we know that this dismal reality that he shares. The discouraged disciples and finally in the midst of all the tears I'm sure and discouragement that seem to abound we see the glorious resurrection. Jesus hasn't slept now in over 24 hours. He's been mocked and beaten. Pilate, of course, ordered Jesus to be flogged. That was a requirement of the Roman law before crucifixion. Jesus is beaten unmercifully. His back, his legs are shredded by the metal balls, the bone, the shards of glass and pottery that are embedded in this, this whip's end. They strike him with it and literally it wraps around his body and tears the flesh right off. The soldiers place a crown of thorns on his head and a robe upon his back. They mock him. They belittle him. We're told in the scriptures that they do so by even spitting upon him. They rip the robe then that was placed on his back after being flogged. Think about it. It's been on his back and it has now adhered to the flesh. The blood has dried and literally they rip it off again. The body in the back begin to bleed all over again and that's when the soldiers take a crown of thorns and they place it on Jesus' head and they put another robe Excuse me, they put that robe on there and then they mock him and belittle and they spit upon him. But then, as I said, they rip it right back off. They'd parade him through the city streets. They'd ride, take him right on up to Calvary. There his hands and his feet would be nailed to the cross. The creator God, the, the creator God of the universe... would hang between heaven and earth bearing the sin of the entire world. The very people who placed him on the cross, so to speak, the very ones who cried crucify him, the very ones that nailed the nails in his hands and his feet, the very ones he created, would assist him onto the cross. You say, why do you say assist? Because really nobody put him there. He willingly gave his life. There he would die on that cross and he'd be buried in a borrowed tomb. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 28.
What an exciting time it was 33 years earlier. Not too many people knew about it. Obviously, only the shepherds were alerted by the angelic host. And a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes was found lying in a manger. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. As we think about the humility of Christ right off the bat, the literal creator of the universe was willing to lay in a manger, an animal trough. But he didn't remain a baby. He grew into the man, a sinless man, Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. And there again, he took his place on Calvary and now in a borrowed tomb. But he wasn't going to stay there long. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear ye not, excuse me, fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He's not here. For he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. He is risen, as he said. What an unlikely hero. When it would seem that all was lost, all hope had fled, but really in reality things had just started getting good. Even his own disciples were laden with unbelief. It's hard to imagine after Jesus had already warned them of his, his plight in Jerusalem, the fact that he would ultimately die and be crucified. But he reminded them he would rise again the third day. Nonetheless, the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 24, verse 9, they returned from the sepulcher, these ladies who had gone to see Jesus, remember he had been placed in this tomb and the stone had been rolled there and now they go to anoint the Lord and find that he's no longer there. So they go back to tell the disciples as ordered by Jesus and they returned from the sepulcher and they told all these things unto the eleven and to the, all the rest. Verse 11, and their words seemed to them as idle tales and they believed them not. Isn't that something? I mean, after all the, the words that Jesus shared, after all the times that he gave them warning, and according to the scriptures, we see that he had done that on a, a number of occasions. Still, in this particular case, as the ladies returned back from the tomb, saying that Jesus Christ was no longer there, that he, they met the angel, he said that he had been risen as he said, and the Bible says their words seemed as, to them as idle tales, like a, just a story. It was a story kind of like many people believe it is today. It's just a story. It's a quaint little story. It's, it's even somewhat captivating, depending on who's sharing the story. It's, it's nice to think about. I mean, it's certainly, I don't know, it's, it's inspiring to some degree. But the words themselves seem as an idle tale, and they believe them not. 
Now listen, I can understand that with the world. I get that from folks who have never met the Lord, who have never associated with Him, who have never traveled with Him, people who just maybe had heard about Him, but not those that literally walked with Him and talked with Him and lived with Him and dined with Him and served with Him and did miracles side by side. How is it that these men believe not? Hard to imagine, isn't it? We get on ourselves pretty good when we don't believe, don't we? You know, it's like, man, I'm struggling a little bit with my faith right now. And people are like, I shouldn't do that. If you're a good Christian, you'd never, ever, ever question things. Well, these disciples walked with him. For three years, they literally gave up their occupation and traveled with the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he says to them, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. And then he rose, and they were like, I don't believe it. I'm not trying to give us a pass on our unbelief. That's certainly not the goal here. But listen, when you have questions, you need to go to God and say, listen, I'm struggling a little bit here. I'm really having a hard time believing this stuff. And I need your help, Lord. You're going to have to show me something in the Scripture. You're going to have to reveal something through maybe a a close companion. Maybe you'll use something the preacher says or something. But Lord, I need some encouragement. I need some strength. And my faith needs to grow. And we know that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So you've got to make sure you don't dismiss the the Word of God. Stay in it. But ask God to help you be honest with them. But they, they believe not. And, and Thomas. Thomas was especially doubtful, right? I mean, if you start thinking about the, the doubting disciple. Oh, Thomas, you know, Thomas, he's, he's a bad apple. That Thomas, I don't know, man. He, he, well, the Bible says in John 20, 25, the other disciples therefore said unto him, we have seen the Lord. And Jesus shows up, you know. They're like walking into the room and it's like, hey, what's going on? Oh, Jesus, well, what's going on here? Well, they saw Jesus, and that's something. But wait a second. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord, but he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Well, I've been there a few times. John 20, 27 through 29, though, Then saith he to Thomas, talking about Jesus, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. And reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. Boy, does Jesus, he wants you to believe more than you want to believe. He really, he wants you to believe in him more than you want to believe in him. He'll do anything he can to help you if you really want help. If you want to believe, he'll help you believe. We live in a culture and a society that says don't believe. I mean, only ignorant people believe in faith, faith issues, only spiritual matters. Those, they're good. Be spiritual, just don't believe in Jesus Christ. I mean, that resurrected thing, that's just not... Hey, come on, man. You've got to be getting real with life. Oh, you mean have all the hope you have? So like when you die, where do you go? What happens? It's funny that people that don't believe in Jesus somehow believe in heaven. Their mamas are there, their daddies are there, their aunts and uncles are there, but they had no faith, nor did they believe in Jesus. It's amazing how we believe that part of the Bible, but we don't believe anything else. It's amazing to me. 
And then there's this group of people now that are going around, you know, well, we just believe there's darkness, there's the grave, there's nothing, because let's face it, there's no God, so therefore how can there be any? Yeah, okay. You closed your eyes to everything that you see in this world and everything you experience in this world? You believe that this just happened? You really believe that? You are convinced that nothing brought nothing. Or should I say nothing brought something is what I should say. That's really what we think? That's not even, that's not consistent. It's not consistent with anything we believe today, anything we know, anything science tells us. That is inconsistent. But that's what they expect us to believe? No, I don't think so. Today, Jesus says, you want, you want to believe? Go ahead. Put your finger in the nail prints. Go ahead, thrust your hand in my side. I want you to experience firsthand. So Jesus would reveal himself to Thomas and to so many others over the next 40 days. Huh. Jesus may be an unlikely hero with his unusual birth, his unusual disposition, but he can be nothing less than a hero after willingly taking our place my place on the cross, after paying for my sin, your sin on the cross, after suffering and agonizing in shame on the cross of, that we read about so often this time of year. After three days and three nights, he gloriously rose from the dead. He didn't need his own tomb, he just borrowed one because he knew he wasn't staying. born on November the 13th, 1881, in the town of Hermosillo in Sonora, Mexico. Jesus Garcia was one of eight children. At the age of 17, he got a job with the Montezuma uh, Copper Company. Over time, he was promoted to switchman, and then he finally made his way to Brakeman before tragedy struck in 1907. On November the 7th, the 25-year-old was on his break in the freight yard of Nakazara, Mexico, when all of a sudden he saw smoke beginning to rise, clouding the horizon, and within minutes, he realized that the chimney stack of his train had caused sparks that blew under the hay atop the first cars. To the terror of Garcia and his co-workers, that day's cargo was 70 boxes of dynamite. Garcia was well aware that an imminent explosion would cause the gas tanks and dynamite reserves littering the freight yard to literally destroy everything in sight. Of course, this would lead most men to flee for their very lives. But Garcia not only refused to flee, to take cover. No, he didn't do that. Instead, he hopped aboard the train he put it in reverse and he drove it as fast and as far away from the city as possible. Some said Garcia intended to jump off when the train had reached a safe place or an isolated location. But either way, the dynamite exploded and Garcia died in that explosion. By the time the explosion took his life, however, he had managed to get the train over three miles away from the town. It's said that the explosion or the debris of that explosion lasted for several minutes and that the only piece ever recovered of, from Garcia was one of his boots. A humble and heroic 
brakeman saved the lives of many that day. In the end, the town of Nakasara, it changed its name to Nakasari de Garcia in his honor. After all, I mean, without his act of sacrifice, <laughs> the village wouldn't have been much of a town at all at that point. And today, if you would visit Nakazari, you would find a memorial in honor of Jose Garcia. What a hero. Saving potentially hundreds of lives, possibly thousands. Heroes are known for saving someone or something. Garcia and other heroes like him, well, they save lives without a doubt, for sure. But none have saved souls. Nor have they saved as many lives as Jesus Christ. There is no other hero in history like the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate hero. Two thousand years ago, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It goes on to say that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We know that in Romans chapter 6. Two thousand years ago, God sent the greatest gift he could have ever sent. He sent Jesus Christ. He sent us the potential of eternal life. The greatest gift I ever got when I was a kid, and I remember this vividly, and again, it might not even be the greatest or best gift anymore, but I was just 12 years of age. And I remember it was, the, it was just a, an unusual year. I'd kind of gone from being a child to adult, so the things had changed a little bit. And I still remember that Christmas specifically. My brother and I, we shared a room and my parents and uh, us, we all stayed up, the two of us, the other two went to bed earlier. And so I was up with the adults for the first time. And I still remember that they said, well, listen, we're going to give you one of the gifts that we have for you. And they decided to share a gift with us. And we opened that gift, my brother and I together. He said, now, it's, it's for both of you. It, it's for you and your room. It's not just yours or his. It's both of yours. And we opened it up, and it was a stereo system. And, and I need to tell you, the speakers were probably no more than that big. And they had, like, arrows, like shape of an arrow. And one pointed one way, and the other pointed the other. Man, there's tremendous options there when you're 12. But I still remember that gift, and we were so excited. We had our first stereo. We were going to be able to play, I mean, grown-up music. And we took that baby. Oh, man, it was the best ever. I'm sure you've received some gifts that were pretty, pretty cool, really awesome, or at least nice. But let's be honest. There can't possibly be a gift any better than eternal life. I mean, if, 
I was laying on my deathbed and somebody came in and said, hey, I got a beautiful stereo for you. To be frank with you, that wouldn't mean a whole lot to me at that point, would it? I might be appreciative and say, thank you for thinking of me, but I'll use it, I don't know how long. Do you want it back soon? Or do you care if I give it away? But if they walked in and said, I want to offer you life, it's yours for the taking today. There wouldn't be another gift that would compare. Today, I want you to understand that Jesus took his place on that cross, not that one specifically, but a cross, and he literally died for you. He took your place. He paid for your sin. He didn't deserve to die. You did, and I did. He didn't deserve to pay for sin. No, I did. You do. We have to, a responsibility. Sin must be paid for. But he said, I'll tell you what, I'll pay it in your place. And he hung on Calvary and he literally shed his perfect, precious blood for you and I. And there he died, was buried. And he said, I want to prove to you that I can give you everything I promised. And so he rose from the dead to prove that he has power over death. So today, as he offers me life, he offers you life, I can trust him because he proved he is the life. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? Have you received Christ as your Lord? Will you allow him to be your Savior? Remember, savers, saviors, they save lives. He will save your life and he'll save your soul if you only let him. That's a decision only you can make. I pray today that this unlikely hero, Jesus Christ, I pray you allow him to be your Savior, that you'll receive him today. Trust him with your life and your eternity. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for all you've done for us. Lord, we are a needy people and Yet, Lord, you are there to meet our needs. I ask that you would be with each and every one that is represented here. I pray that, Lord, if any are here that have yet to acknowledge Christ as the Savior of the world, they have yet to receive him themselves personally. It's not enough that he died on the cross to pay for the sin of the world. We have to accept his payment now personally. Oh, we need him. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, every time I turn a television on, it seems I see something about Camp Lejeune and the money that's been set aside for those who ingested poisons that ultimately can lead to cancer. They keep putting this commercial on, and I think to myself, why? You have all this money that's been designated. It's already been Put aside, why do you keep doing that? Because they know that unless you ask for it, you won't get it. Oh, it's been set aside already. It's made available, but they keep wanting you to come to them and let them get it for you because they also know they're going to get a piece of it as a lawyer. Hold on, Jesus Christ paid the awful penalty for sin. He paid it in full for the entire world, however, 
you can't just can't lean on that. You have to come and ask that it be applied to your life. That payment's made on your behalf. That you get what he said you had coming. And that's salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Will you trust him today? It's not enough that he died for the world. He died for you and he wants you to acknowledge his death on your behalf and his resurrection. Will you trust him today? Father, thank you again for this opportunity we have. Lord, may you just impress upon the hearts of people conviction that will draw them unto salvation. Be glorified, we pray now in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand.